well. Um, you know, feel free to use that. You can drop a prayer and take someone else's. Um, but I do want to mention, too, just a couple of things that maybe caution on how we pray for our nation is this is so easy for us to kind of slip into, I pray for them because they don't agree with me types of prayers, um, which we should always guard against. Um, and so I encourage you, pray, as I mentioned last week, pray for our first family. Pray for Michelle and Obama and her kids. Pray for their joy, their, their goodness, their flourishing. Um, pray for those you agree with and you disagree with. Like we talked about last week, love of enemy or whatever, and not that they're enemies by any means. Um, again, because I think all of us across here probably fall different areas politically. And so I just encourage you that we pray. We just pray for the flourishing of people. Um, that's what God is after, is for people to flourish. And so um, just be careful in that. I want to encourage us to pray for that. But it, I was just sitting there, and God kind of reminded me of that. Um, our tendency is to slip into that, and so be careful with that. Um, but pray for our, 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 our country. Pray for our leaders. Um, in an election cycle, uh, it's, it, we just, everyone needs prayer, right? We all need prayer. So uh, just pray for, for our country and whatnot in that. I want to encourage you in that. And then secondly, I want to say Happy Mother's Day to all you uh, mothers and ladies. Um, it, what, a, what a good day. I, I'm convinced, not only because I had to be born, I wouldn't be here, but I don't think I would have survived to this age without um, women in my life. And so thank you for that. I'm like, my wife stayed home this weekend, and within like an hour of not having a woman next to me, I spilled coffee on my shirt. So uh, I just simply wouldn't really survive. So, uh, but I want to just say thank you um, to you women. I do mean women as well. Whether you're a mother or not, uh, I want to I wanna just say thank you. Uh, to the women as they often do the unsung duties uh, in, in life. Uh, I remember my wife, we were, we were driving the other day, and I, um, I need to make a doctor's appointment, which I just never go to the doctor because um, it, it costs money, and that's ridiculous. Um, so I, like, never do. And so I remember, like, talking to my wife, and I'm not kidding. We've been married. We'll be seven years married in August. I think I've made maybe one doctor's appointment in that seven years. And so I literally looked at her, and we we're trying to, she's like, I had to do this to, to get it set with our new doctor. She's like, have you done it? And I'm like, no. I was like, I don't even know how to. And I just look at her and I go, I go, Lindsay, if I got a cold and you were like out of the picture, I'm pretty sure I would just die. I was like, I have no idea, right? Like, thank you women for your patience, um, the tasks you do, um, the unsung, unthanked jobs that so many of you um, do. So you moms, thank you. You women who pour into the lives of others, um, thank you. I know they're just like any holiday, there can be a lot of mixed emotions um, for some of you who may desire to be moms but can't or, or haven't had that opportunity. Know that you are as well lumped into Mother's Day. Um, you are spiritual mothers. You are um, the women of the church that we need to, to round out the body of Christ. So, um, so I just want to say thank you. I hope you enjoy the day. Um, yes, we can definitely. And thank you for enduring our singing. Uh, my mic was off, which is a blessing for all of you. So, uh, but anyway, let me, I just want to pray over the women uh, in, in this church particularly. So, um, Lord, I thank you, God, for, for the women in this place, uh, God, who, who do so much that either gets overshadowed or overlooked. Uh, but, God, I just thank you for them. I thank you for the women in my life that have shaped me and formed me into who I am. Um, God, for, for all of the work they do to, to keep life, um, you know, the way it moves, the way it goes. Um, Lord, we just thank you for them. So, Lord, I pray that they feel blessed today, that they feel honored. Um, God, I pray for my mom and the mother of my children, too, particularly, that they feel blessed and honored. Um, and so, Lord, we just thank you for a day to stop and celebrate and help us men to maybe step up a bit more today and, and honor them. And so, God, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So maybe more so than any other 
indictment that's brought against the church from those kind of outside the church uh, beyond like, is the church loving or does God exist? Uh, Is God loving? Why does he let bad things happen? Like all of those kind of big high questions. I think the most consistent indictment that's brought against the church kind of on the ground in one-to-one interactions that I have, especially when I was working with students, um, is I believe that the most consistent argument that I see against the church is that we are full of hypocrites. I just think that is like the, one of the biggest arguments or, or indictments that we have from people who maybe are not a part of our community. They look on and they say, man, how can you be a part of that? They are just full of hypocrites. And what Jesus is going to get at today is he's going to address a bit of this. Because I hope this morning is a chance for us to really just be honest. Right? Because if we're honest, right, like we are hypocrites, <laughs> Like, if we're honest, like, we, I mean, communion, what we're going to celebrate after the sermon, the cross, everything central to our story is this story where Jesus came because we weren't enough. Like, at the core, the gospel, the cross is this giant declaration that, man, we need help. We are screw-ups. We are hypocrites. And I think for so long, the church, we kind of play this act that, that, that we're better than we are or, or we have things figured out maybe more so than we, we do. And so, and so what Jesus is going to do this morning is he's going to begin to kind of chip away at this idea of hypocrisy. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's really done is from the very beginning in the Beatitudes, he said, I am with the ones you don't think should have God with them. I'm on the side of the marginalized, oppressed, pushed push down, the ugly, the dirty, the whatever. He says, I am on their side. And he begins there, and he's really addressing two questions. He's addressing who is the one who's really well off? Who's the one whose side God is on? And he lays this his invitation to the kingdom of life now that it is for everyone. And then he says, really, he gets into the next section of saying, who is genuinely good? Who is living the kingdom way? And it's the person who not withholds murder from the guy you're angry with, but rather roots out anger so it is not pushing forth murder. Who isn't controlled by anger, who isn't controlled by lust and and deception and and all those things that we've kind of been going through. And in Matthew 6, where we'll be today, you can open your Bibles there if you would like, we're turning a corner a bit, and Jesus now has been talking about his teachings of the kingdom of God, of of kind of a new way to look at the Old Testament, the old law, and now he's going to transition into what are the religious practices that we do, like fasting and giving and prayer. And then he's going to say, okay, how do we take this? What does kingdom living look like there? And primarily what he's going to do through all of chapter 6 is he is going to address two concerns, two hindrances that will keep us outside of living and kind of in the flow of the kingdom of God that's breaking forth here and now. He says there's two main traps, two main deceptions that if we fall into, our life is simply incongruent with kingdom way. And the first one that we'll look like today, we'll look at today, is hypocrisy or seeking the approval of others or our reputation, whatever it is, it's, it's that. Ultimately, that, if we fall into this kind of rhythm of having to seek the approval of others, of putting on a front, whatever it is, he says, your life just will not fall in line with the kingdom. And the second one, which we'll look at next week, is when we not not secure our approval of others, but we try to secure ourselves through material wealth. And he'll get into that, and he'll talk about the trap of money and how money has this tendency that it's, it's far more linked to our hearts than we realize. 
And we just need to be made aware of that. We need to be made aware of that. And so Jesus is going to approach these two major kind of, kind of meta-narratives in these kind of two teachings through chapter 6, where he's saying this is where we have to be careful. This is where we have to be careful. Because again, what Jesus is after is getting beyond that hypocrisy. He's saying that inside of us, there is something in us that is pushing forth action. Our tendency is to look at action, to say, okay, I want to be like Jesus, so I need to pray more, do this, do that, whatever it is. But we don't think of the kind of person who Jesus was. That he was the kind of person who would love his enemies. He was the kind of person who would push forth the life that he lived. It was not accidental that he was who he was. And Jesus is saying, let's get to that. And that's why he looks at anger and lust and all of those. And he says, there's something beyond that we have to get at that's pushing forth that kind of life. I mean, think of, think of Paul in Romans 7. Remember, he says this kind of famous passage. He says, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. And he says, but the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. He's like, all of us, again, everyone in this room, we live with some sort of inconsistency in our life. And Paul's saying, man, I feel it inside us. There's this battle raging in us that the things I want to do, I can't figure out how to do. And he blames it on what's called the sin that dwells in us. He says, there's something in us pulling us away that's causing this hypocrisy. And and again, this morning, I hope that we just own up a bit to it. That we recognize, church, yeah, we are hypocrites often. And we have to own that. Because if we're not honest, if we continue to play the game, which we are really, really good at. Like, we can play this game better than anyone, I honestly believe better than anyone in the world. We are really good at looking one way and living completely different. We are really, like, we, we own that, you know what I mean? Which isn't a good thing, but we do. We know how to do that. And so what, what Jesus is going to get at is a bit of how do we get beyond that. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 is where we'll be. And this verse functions like all of the first 18 verses of chapter 6 hinge on verse 1. Just like if you have your Bibles open in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, that was kind of an introduction to the teaching. That's when he says, your righteousness must go beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. That was an introduction to what he was teaching on anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love of enemy, all of that. 6, 1 is an introduction to what he's doing for the rest of it. And so in verse 6, or in chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Okay, he says right off the bat, beware, be on guard, be careful. There's a danger. The lure for all of us, the trap for all of us is that we will begin to practice our righteousness, which remember is that word dekaiosune we talked about a couple weeks ago, which is the goodness in us that pushes forth the life or pushes forth God's justice in our life. We talk about how righteousness and justice are the same word, which has a lot of interesting connections. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness, this goodness, this kingdom way. He says, the trap for all of us, every man and woman, is to practice that for the sake of being seen by others. He says, we, that is just a natural tendency. And listen, the irony isn't lost on me. For the past 10 years of my life, I've been what you could call a professional Christian. Right? I've worked in churches for a decade now. Like, I could, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm better at this game of faking it than you are. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, 100%, right? Like, I grew up in the church. I grew up, my mom was a children's pastor, and so I, during the summers, would spend more time at church than I would at home. Like, I knew how to be one thing on Sunday and a completely other thing on Monday through Saturday. And I could fool anyone. I mean, I, it was just built into me. 
You know what I mean? Like, like it's, the irony isn't lost in me. When I say things like, like today, when I say things like in my experience, I'm saying literally this is something I need to beware of over and over. You know, like I get the opportunity every week to stand here and preach for 30, 30 minutes or so, and you guys are so gracious. You say all sorts of good things about it. And the, the tendency for me is to soak all of that up. And let's be honest, I could totally be faking it, and you would never know. I mean, truthfully. I'm telling you, I'm better at this game than you. And Jesus says the lure, the bent of our heart is towards that. And so things like I do, like I love that my wife gets to sit here because she knows me. She knows when I'm a wreck. She knows the things, the tendencies in me. And so she can, she can call me out. And the tendency is for, it's because of this, we, we need to surround ourselves with people because Jesus says, listen, all of us, our bent is toward this, to look one way but live another. He says, be careful, be on guard of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, this does not mean that we can't practice our faith publicly. Okay, in, in Matthew 5, just earlier in that section on salt and light, Jesus actually instruct, instructs us to in verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says there is a way, a call on the church to live their faith publicly so that others see your good works, but it brings glory to God, not yourself. So he says there is a way to do this, but again, here he says be careful. The tendency is not to give glory to God, not to bring the kingdom, but rather bring the kingdom of Kevin a bit further to bring my kingdom a bit bigger because I want to be seen by others. And Jesus is so practical throughout this whole text. Listen to what he says in the second half of verse 1. It says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He says, if you practice your faith to be seen by others, God was never a part of the deal. Right? It wasn't like we were trying to obey God. We weren't trying to bring God's kingdom. He says, you were trying to approve or get the approval of others. And Jesus or God just says, listen, I'll give you that. And over and over, throughout each of the examples he gives, he's going to say, your reward has been paid in full. If you want to practice your faith in front of others, people will take notice. They'll give you the reward you seek. And God will stand back and say, listen, I was never a part of the deal, or I was never a part of the deal anyway, so you're not going to get a reward from me because I was never a part of it. It's not like this, like I'm punishing you. It's just simply you sought the approval of others. You got it. And to me, it's so terrifying because God often gives us what our hearts long for, but if we've lived at all, we recognize that our hearts are broken and often don't want the right things. And that's essentially what God is saying. He says, listen, I'm going to stand back. I'm going to give you, allow you to pursue that in others, but listen, it's going to be hollow. He says, you'll get it. People will, I mean, again, church, we can walk out of here and you can fake it for the next 20 years and no one would ever know, ever. I mean, let's be honest. Again, we are good at this. We're good at this. We can play the game for as long as we want to play the game. But what Jesus is going to offer here is he's saying, listen, the kingdom way is available to you now. To step into it, you can't seek the approval of others because that's not what the kingdom's about. It's just simply incongruent. That is the kingdom of whoever, or it's seeking whatever, but it's not seeking the things of God. If the kingdom of God is what we're after, about establishing that here and now, we enter into it with God as the center of our affections, with God as the center of everything. And then from there, our life is lived out. So Jesus is going to give three, um, three examples through four triads. If you remember, Jesus is teaching in a triadic structure, um, and he's going to give the example of giving. Okay, which we'll look at in a second. He's going to give two examples of prayer. Then he's going to give one more example of fasting. 
right? So he's going to, in the prayer, he gives two different triads, okay? And again, the triad, um, all that is is it helps us parse out what Jesus is doing, and he offers a traditional righteousness, okay? So something that's commonly held that he's affirming, and then he usually offers a vicious cycle, though, that if we take it merely at face value, it has a tendency to spiral into sin, and it's something that's broken. So he says there's the vicious cycle, and then lastly, he offers a transforming initiative. How do we get out of the cycle, Okay, so that's kind of what he's doing in that. So with that, um, let's look at the first example in uh, Matthew 6, verses 2 through 4. It says this. Thus, when you give to the needy, okay, there's the, transform, or the traditional righteousness. He assumes that the, the believer will be marked by generosity. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, he begins thus, when you give. Not if you give, but when you give. That the mark of a disciple is generosity. Right? That, that ultimately, because we recognize that everything that we have has been given to us by God, we respond by holding things loosely, by giving generously. And that word in your Bible might say alms. Some of you might have that. Alms or giving to the needy, as my text says. All that means is charitable giving. It could include the tithe, but he's not speaking specifically of the tithe. Okay, that could be a piece of it, but he's more just saying, when you do something charitable... Right? He says, when that happens, because as a disciple of Jesus, we will foster generosity. We will give in generosity because we are followers of Jesus. That is simply what a believer in Jesus does is we give because God has given to us. That is naturally the flow of a disciple's life. He says, when you give to the needy. Right? And then he gives the, the vicious cycle. He says, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Okay, now remember, Jesus is not off in his bedroom typing up a blog about a sermon, right? He is preaching to people. The people in front of him, as we looked at the very, it was the first um, week of, this, of the series, is that they are the mishmash of society. It is like the, the political left, the political right, it's the sick, the unclean, the dirty, the mess, the marginalized, the oppressed, all of them are before Jesus. And beyond that, there's kind of the religious elites, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are there as well. And scholars kind of believe they're in two camps on what Jesus means by sound no trumpet. Okay, it was believed, and it sounds ridiculous, um, but one camp holds that, that the Pharisees would actually carry around a little trumpet with them. So whenever they were about to do a, a charitable deed, they'd pull out a trumpet. They would literally blow it to draw attention, to make sure people know and they'd plop down 100, 200, 300, whatever it was. Right? Like that was just that's what they believed they did. Okay? It very well could be true. We don't necessarily know, but that could be one interpretation. The other one is that there were in the synagogue, there were these giant kind of containers that you would come and bring your offering to. And they believed that the Pharisees would come and they would essentially take like a bucket of coins and pour it out slowly so the noise would just hit the buckets and it would just like create this ruckus that people would be like drawn to, right? Like either way, what he's saying is don't make a big scene, right? Like don't make a giant scene about it. He says, sound no trumpet before you. And I love it because he looks at the Pharisees who are in front of them. He says, don't be like them. They're hypocrites, I mean, think about it. He is stand they are the religious, political elite of the day, and he says they're hypocrites. Just calls them out. 
And this phrase hypocrite really is drawn from, it's a theater term. It means essentially mask wearer. And so in the ancient days, in Jesus' world, they had these theaters and the, the people would put on masks. We've maybe seen them with like exaggerated smiles or exaggerated frowns. And it was so like everyone could kind of understand what they're trying to communicate. And he says the Pharisees, he says, they're like a mask wearer. They're a hypocrite. They're like actors. They're playing the part. He looks at him and he says, don't be like them because they're doing it for the wrong purpose. In Matthew, I think, 23, he goes on almost this tirade towards the disciples. He says, listen, they're like whitewashed tombs. He says, on the outside, they look great, but inside, they're full of dead man's bones. Right? We looked at a couple weeks ago that they clean the outside of the cup, but inside, it's full of death and malice. He says, the Pharisees, he says, the ones who are projecting an image of what they want people to think of them... He says, there, that's where death lies. That's where, that is where life, that's the, not the kingdom way. Because again, all of us can do this. All of us have this availability where we can claim to be something we're not. But church, what he's saying is, listen, be honest. Don't sound a trumpet. Don't draw attention. Don't be, be, know that that danger is there. Kind of suppress it, push it away, whatever it is. And he says, don't fall or succumb to that. Don't be like the hypocrites. He says, and now he's going to offer his uh, transforming initiative in verse 3. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, what's Jesus doing here? Clearly he's not saying, like, literally your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, because that's logically impossible, right? If I told you not to think of a pink elephant for the next 20 minutes, all you're going to do is think about a pink elephant and trying how not to. Right? Bill Cosby, I think, did an old sketch on that. Right? Is, is what he's doing is the only way that your left hand cannot know what your right hand is doing is if it becomes a natural outflow of your life. Think about driving. You all drove here, and the majority of that process getting here was all done subconsciously. Like, you don't think about when you hit the gas or when you hit the brake. Like, generally, all of that happens in our subconscious because it's simply, it's a skill that we have acquired. It is something that we have come to. Like, think about when you were at, in driving school, right? You were like 10 and 2 all day long. You know what I mean? Like, 10 and 2, like, left, right, left. You know, you like, my dad was a UPS driver, and so he was, like, the worst to learn how to drive with uh, because he would hammer home everything. Like, he had us memorize these, like, 10 points of driving that I don't remember one of them. Uh, but he like made us memorize all this stuff, you know. And it's like, but eventually, at some point, I became the kind of person to which driving was a bit second nature. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, when you give, don't sound a trumpet, don't draw attention. Instead, because you're marked with generosity, you become the kind of person who does give, and you don't even recognize that your left hand is giving because it's a natural outpouring of it. Right? Like, that is what Jesus is after. And listen, again, he's very practical. Um, he says before in verse 2, he says, truly I say to you, they have received your reward. If you give for the sake of people to see you, people will notice you. He's saying, listen, if you give and you want people to know, go ahead. People will notice it, but that's your reward. That's what you're after. You can achieve that. But again, he goes on. He says, but listen, in verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, listen, who you are at your core, not like, you know, don't get this picture of God like lurking in your closet watching you in secret, okay? We have this image somehow, but it's not what he's doing. He's saying, I know you at your core. In the secrecy of your own house, he says, I know who you are at your core. And he says, listen, if, that's the, if you are a kingdom type person, I recognize that. I see that. 
Okay, we, again, all of us at some level have inconsistency in our lives. We are all in process of becoming. And God says, listen, I know that. In the same way that, like, my daughter, my, who's going to be five in June, okay, she, uh, yesterday when I was driving out for the Saturday service, my wife texted me and says, Madison just peed all over the floor. Another thank you for the mothers in the room. Um, but she's like, she just peed all over the floor. Like, listen, I wish my daughter was a little further along in some things. Like, I wish she didn't have a granola bar and it explodes in the living room somehow and there's granola everywhere, right? Like, I don't even know how it happens, but she does it. It's like, I wish there were things in her life that were further along, but listen, nothing changes the way I view her. Like, I love that little lady. Like, I just, even when she makes a mess, even when I'm cleaning up another, like, pee mess, I'm like, how did this happen? Even when, like, whatever it is, my love doesn't change for her. Yes, I wish she's further along. She'll get there. When we were potty training, my mom always affirmed us. She's like, listen, she's not going to go to college in diapers. She'll figure it out. So I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I hope it's before then, but, you know. But again, so many times we approach God with this, like, overwhelming seriousness, and we, we get so trapped, and I have to become this. And God's saying, listen, you're in progress. It takes time. He's gracious. He's forgiving. He's patient with us. He loves us like I love my daughter, who, who it doesn't matter where she's at. It's like, man, I just love her. And that love won't be different when she figures out how to go to the bathroom in the actual toilet consistently, right? Like, I'll maybe enjoy her more. No, I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean? Like, like it's still, like, my love doesn't change. We have, this, we have this image of God that he is upset with us, angry, lurking in our closet, ready to strike us with a lightning bolt until we become some future version of ourselves. Listen, God, he's indifferent on the future version of you. He wants you there, yes. He hopes that you move forward. But listen, his love doesn't change. And like, God, we have to, at a fundamental level, the reason that we project an image of more, being more religious is to either get something from others or we think that God is angry at us and we have to project something. But God loves you. He loves you, man. That's why he started the sermon. He just said, I am on the side of the weak, the ones who don't deserve it. I'm on their side. Like, that is how he begins all of this. And he says, listen, your father knows who you are in secret, and he sees you in secret, and he will reward you. So the second example in verse 5. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, again, not if you pray, but when you pray. That's the traditional righteousness there. He says, a follower of Jesus will pray. All right, you will engage with the divine. You will interact with the divine. That is just a natural part of being a follower of Jesus. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Right, and here's the vicious cycle. He says that the hypocrites, they take this idea of prayer, and they would literally walk through the streets or in the synagogues, and they would say these lofty prayers. They would say them loudly to draw attention. The image was, like when they're walking in the street, the image they're trying to draw is like, I'm so holy, I can't even wait to get to the synagogue to pray. I'm going to stop here and just pray. Right, like that was the picture they were trying to, to communicate. And so they would pray loudly. All this attention would come. And again, Jesus is very practical. He says, listen, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. People will take note. When we do these things, when you pray, if you're seeking the approval of others, you will get that. It will be given. That reward will be given to you. But Jesus offers a different way. He says, but when you pray... Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay. 
Again, this is not a new form of legalism, all right? I prayed just a couple minutes ago. I'm going to pray at the end of the sermon. It's not a command to never pray publicly. But rather, it's a prayer, or it's the, the idea of when you pray, are you praying for the sake of pursuing God, meeting him, getting to know him, or are you praying so that others may be impressed? And again, this whole logic is so ludicrous to me because we have the image that we would rather look like we're godly opposed to actually being godly. Like we want to look like we know God and experience God and enjoy God instead of actually knowing God, experiencing God, and enjoying God. Like you see the trap. Like if we took the energy that we put into projecting an image and actually followed Jesus, we would be the thing we want other people to see us as. Like we see how logically this is just a mess, but we play the games, don't we? And again, this happens the majority of the time in these walls, in church walls. We play these games. I, I grew up in church, like I said, so I remember pulling up to the church on a Sunday morning. We'd been maybe fighting all week or whatnot. We opened the door. We're totally a wreck. But once that door flung open, we were fine. You know what I mean? Like, all right, oh, we're doing fine. Good week. You know what I mean? Like, like, we know the games. And honestly, again, the world looks on. They say, listen, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And honestly, I can't argue with them. We play the games. Right? And Jesus says, listen, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Right? Don't just stand giving these lofty prayers. Look into the next example he gives on prayer. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, the entire series could be preached on what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer. That makes more sense to me. Um, but a whole series could be preached on that. We're just skimming the surface. But what I want you to notice is, again, right at the beginning, and when you pray, traditional righteousness, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Okay, this is what happens when it's time to pray out loud, and all of a sudden you're talking to some guy, just Norman, you're like, hey, you want to pray for us? And he like downshifts into King James, and he's like, oh, holy thou art God of my heart. And it's like, you never talk like that. You know what I mean? It's like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like we have this tendency to dress up our words and we just begin to kind of pray in this lofty language we never use because the heart of it is, is we want to look, project something that we're not. And Jesus is saying, listen, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, thinking they'll be heard for their many words. He says, be honest. He says, be honest in your prayer. Be who you are. I mean, like, just be who you are. And, and look at the way that he then presents the prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer, kind of the model throughout it. Look how, like, God-centric it is. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even the parts where it talks about us, give us this day our daily bread, it's saying, we're weak, I need you. Say, give us our daily bread. Help us to be sustained. See, all of the Lord's Prayer is directed towards God. It is God-centered. And the challenge for us is, does your prayer life match that? Because mine tends to default into a laundry list of things I need from God. Like, my tendency is to just pray. And the way I see this is, you know, as we teach Madison how to pray, and again, she's going to be five in a month, is, is she tends, like, everything, it's scary how much she learns from us, right? She's a little mirror image of Kevin, which is terrifying. 
Okay? But so when I pray with her and I begin to see her, that she just begins, thank you, God, for da-da-da-da, give me this, da-da-da-da. I'm thinking, that's exactly how she hears me pray. That's why she prays like that. You know I mean, but for most of us, we approach prayer in this kind of laundry list. God's this cosmic genie that we just, we, we turn into a machine where I pray this and God puts out that and it's excellent. But the Lord's Prayer, all of it is, is centered on God's work, on, on us engaging with the Father, saying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, which presupposes that our kingdom goes and our will goes. Think of Jesus in Gethsemane. Right? He's praying on his knees right before, hours before he's going to be arrested and go to the cross. And he says, God, if there's any other way, he lifts a request to God, but all of it is under the umbrella of, but your will be done. It's this overarching, listen, when you pray, don't heap up these empty phrases, these needs, these you know, mechanistic way of praying. Instead, he says, pray like this. He says, look to God, draw your affections to God. Because again, all of this is Jesus' game. What is the motivation of your heart? What is the intention that you're getting at? Is God the center of your affections? He says, because that is the kingdom. It's, it's the kingdom bringing the new way of life in every way of our world through our goings. We are bringing God, the, 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 the way God has created the world, we're bringing that, that shalom into the world. And so our prayers should match that, that it is Godward and God-centered, not centered on ourselves. And listen to what he says in, in, when we fast. He says in verse 16, and when you fast, okay, which again, that's, to me, that's where I'm already tripped up. Because honestly, fasting is not a regular part of my, my spirituality. I mean, honest, right? Like I do it at the first of the year every once because most churches do a fast at the beginning of the year, which is good. But we need to launch beyond that, right? And he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, did you catch what Jesus just did? For the first three, he's been saying, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't act like something you're not. He says, but when it comes to fasting, if you go without food for three days, whatever, however many days it is, your body will start to have the effects of that. He says, naturally, people will be drawn. They'll begin to ask, like, what's going on? You, attention will naturally be drawn. And then he says, and kind of the biggest irony, he says, that's when you be a hypocrite. He says, dress yourself up. Anoint your head with oil. Wash your face. Make sure you don't draw attention to yourself. Act like you're not fasting so you don't draw attention to you. Okay, again, this is where the heart of Jesus' teaching is don't do it for the sake of others. If you're seeking the approval of others, you will get it. I will give it to you, but you're missing the kingdom. He says, so when you fast, dress yourself up. Don't, don't draw attention to yourself. He says, the point of fasting isn't for others to look good at you. The point of prayer isn't so others think highly of you. The point of giving isn't so others are impressed with you. Instead, he says, when you do that, that is God shaping our hearts, renovating the space within us so we become a kingdom-like person. That is what Jesus is after. And again, this is a life-giving thing. He says, listen, I see you in secret. I know who you are at your core. And that God, the one that sees us, he says, that's the one that will reward you. He will bring that kingdom life. He is checking again our motivations. So church, the question I think for all of us is, where is our hearts? Is our heart okay with the secrecy of discipleship? That at times we need to follow Jesus without the public display. We don't necessarily need to Instagram that post like, in the word today. You know what I mean? Like, like sometimes we don't need that. Right? You spend more time like framing up the picture than you do actually reading. Like I do that all the time. Um, 
But you know what I mean? Like, is our heart bent for the things of God? Look at, we have this slide here, and it's, it's again, Jesus, it's, it's, it's kind of summarizing all of the initiatives that Jesus gives us in this, and it says this. In chapter 6, verse 3, he says, give in secret. In chapter 6, verse 6, he says, pray in secret. 6, 9 through 14, therefore pray like this. 6, 17 through 18, dress with joy in fast in secret. Okay, again, not laws, not hard and fast laws that we can't ever have a public display of, of religion, but he's saying, listen, do it for the sake as if you would do it in secret because it is an outpouring of who you are. Again, church, he's just calling us to stop the games. Like, who are we trying to impress? And again, this isn't like an angry God who's waiting to smite us. It's a God that's saying, listen, I'm bringing the kingdom. You have the chance to live in the kingdom now, and if you live for others, it's just incongruent. It doesn't work. Because again, we could leave here, we could go home, we could get in our cars, and generally my experience is that the first time we get in the car, we look at our spouse or whoever we're driving, we're like, hey, what'd you think of the service? Oh, it was good. And that's it. And it never goes beyond that. It stops there, the service was great, the sermon was good, the music was all right, the preacher preached too long, um, whatever it is, like, you know what I mean? We, we tend to def- default into that, and nothing ever changes, and God is simply saying, man, why are we playing this game? I heard a preacher talk about this similar topic, and he's like, you're trying to impress church people? Like, we're not the coolest people in the bunch. You know what I mean? Like, we're not. We're weird. We do all sorts of weird things. And he's like, who are you trying to impress? He says, is God the center of your affection? Because in John 10, 10, he says that I've come to give life and life abundant, that the way of Jesus is available to us, that we follow Jesus because we believe he was brilliant and smart and he forgives us and he brings a new kind of life, the abundant life available for us. He says, listen, don't play the games because you're missing out on the life available. Right here, right now, it's bursting forth. You can walk in the way of the kingdom now. Look at this uh, verse in Ezekiel chapter 33, and it's, it's God speaking to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel had spent some time now preaching to the, the nation of Israel, and he says this, to God, this is again, God speaking to Ezekiel. He says, as for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has, um, that has come from the Lord. He's saying, you're preaching, and it's gathering steam. They're like, hey, come and listen. He says, my people come to you as they usually do, and they sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. He says, indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. He looks, and the indictment on Israel was that they would come, they would listen, and essentially Ezekiel had been reduced to an entertainer. They said, man, you come and you speak well, and, and they think your, your words are beautiful. They're bringing people to come, but it says they don't put them into practice because they mean nothing. He says they're playing a game. They're coming to be entertained, to be filled up, but the call of Jesus, the kingdom of God way, is that we begin to put the teachings of Jesus into action, that maybe when he says love your enemies, he's actually on to something. It's not lofty rhetoric. It's not like this would be a nice thing to do. He's saying, no, there is a way of life that is good and fruitful and brings hope and joy to the world. And he says, this is the way. And it's difficult. He says, it's hard, but it's not impossible. Right? It's it's difficult. But but he says, listen, when you do that, he says, don't just listen and enjoy and be an entertainer. He says, go, put him into practice. Think of David in, in Psalm 42. He says, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. It's David who's saying, listen, my heart, is the center of my affections is that I long for God. Church, do we long for the things of God? 
it's time for us to be a bit honest. Because again, if we come for church for decades, you're just wasting your time. I mean, football's on Sunday, right? You can stay home watching football, you know? Like, why are we going through the motions if we don't think Jesus might be onto something? He's saying this, live this way, put these into practice. And at the end of chapter 7, um, he's going to go on and on about this. He's going to say, um, he's going to talk about how, you know, the one who listens to Jesus is the one who builds his house on the rock, right? And, and in verse seven, tw- or chapter 7, 21 through 23, he has this massive statement that should scare us, and he ends his sermon with it. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven. He says, we can say we follow Jesus. You could call him Lord, Lord, but if you don't follow him, if you don't do what he says, he was never a part of the thing in the first place. And so he says, of course you won't walk in the kingdom way because I, he was never there. You were doing it for other purposes. And again, that should scare us because we can play the game. I could walk out of here and you guys would never know what my life is like. I, believe me, we can put up a good front. We know how to do this. And Jesus is saying, "Is listen, I'm offering life. All you have to do is step into it. So church, for some of us today, we need to just have a heart-to-heart with God. We need to spend some time just praying and thinking and writing or whatever it is and just say, you know what, God, sometimes my heart isn't in it. And I can't tell you how many times if I were to bring my my prayer journal and open it up and it would say, just God, help me love you because I don't right now. Like it would would say things like, God, my heart is just not bent towards that. So if we're honest, again, there are times when our hearts are not set on, on God. And it's easier, right? Or like it's just easier if I don't love God in this moment. And we, be honest with him. He knows that. I mean, we're not going to trick him. Like, he knows. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, just be honest. Stop playing the game. Confess, pray, be encouraged. Get people around you. Some of us, again, need to have that heart-to-heart. Others of us, we need to just question ourselves and say, do I hunger for God? Or do I hunger for others to think well of me? Or next week, it's going to be, do I hunger for wealth and material security? He's going to say, is that the thing that thrives and, and moves us? He says, be honest. Again, church, this is a massive beware, like all caps, exclamation point, beware. The bent towards all of us is to practice it for, other, for the sake of others. He says, no, he says, don't do that. And so communion, my, as we approach communion, my prayer is that this next couple minutes and the next few songs that we sing, that it be a space where we don't, again, just go through the rituals, but use this space to say, you know what, God, I need some revival in my heart. I need my heart to just be, be on, God, I, I'm not feeling it, right? And again, that's never necessarily a good place to exist is in feelings, but it is important to say, man, my heart isn't bent towards that. God, help me. Revive that in me. And that's why we do these rituals. That's why it's important we take communion, the juice, because in our moments where we don't long to, communion, where we can take it and just plop it in, that reminds us of what God has done. It's like a home base. It brings us back to say, no, this is what it's about. It's about Jesus. And we come back to that and we come back to it. So my prayer is in the next few minutes, maybe you need to spend some time just praying with God and saying, God, my heart isn't always in it. Help me. And that's it. It doesn't have to be a lofty prayer. Just say, God, help. Maybe again, for some of us, that is the space for it. And so that's my prayer. As we approach communion, may we begin to be honest with God. May this be a space for a few minutes in these scary walls where we like to put up faces. We can just be honest with God. Say, God, help me. Help me. So will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, um, God, help us, help me. God, the tendency for all of us, like we've been talking about, Lord, what you've been teaching is, is so um, readily there for us. God, is a temptation to look one way instead of being the person you want us to be, the person you're offering us that we can be. 
And so, God, as we take this time, Lord, may you work in our hearts, work in my heart, work in, the, in my friends in this room, God, work in their hearts that they can be honest with themselves. They can maybe be illuminated to the ways in which um, our hearts aren't bent towards you. God, foster in us a heart that says, man, I long for you. So, Lord, work through this. God, awaken this in us. Um, we give you the space. We thank you for patience and grace and forgiveness and um, God, and, and for your love as a father loves his children. So God, meet us in this place as we come before you and we just give you this time to work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.